my dear opponent, Professor Lewis, who's argued so well up till now, can't complete a syllogism. A poor chap, well, you, you really can do that. You're chewing more than you bite off, I'm afraid. One has to ensure that one represents the arguments of one's interlocutor accurately, as I'm sure you would agree. Well, I place myself in the safekeeping of the audience. Is that not what you heard a moment ago my opponent, Professor Lewis, has just said? Please, call me Jack. This is all about Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. I'm William O'Flaherty, the creator of the show. This episode is the eighth and final in a series about the book by Peter S. Williams called C.S. Lewis vs. the New Atheist. If you've listened to any of the previous programs, then you know he will be joining me before too long. While today's show is focused on concluding and summarizing material from C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist, I must encourage you to listen to the other episodes to gain the greatest understanding of the material, as well as to get a copy of the book. To hear past shows in this series and other podcasts, you can go directly to where the files are hosted at allaboutjack.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, allaboutjack.podbean.com. Alternatively, if you want to also read a variety of content about Lewis in addition to browsing the podcast, you can visit EssentialCSLewis.com, where there are a variety of resources to help you learn more about the man most know as being the creator of Narnia. With that out of the way, let me give a final welcome back to Peter B., who has not only been co-hosting, but also has been a great help in creating questions to pitch to our guest. Thanks again for being here, Peter B. Well, thank you. I've had a great time. So, yeah, let's uh, let's go for it on this last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Well, uh, Peter Byram, along with being a strong advocate of defending the Christian faith through apologetics, is a freelance video editor. He will now start his final co-hosting duties by introducing and welcoming our guest. Yes, this is the very last time that I have the privilege of doing this, so here we go. It is a great pleasure to welcome Peter S. Williams back for this last episode of this series that we're doing on his book. Peter S. Williams is a Christian philosopher and apologist. He is Assistant Professor in Communication and Worldviews at Gimlacollins School of Journalism and Communication, which is part of NLA University in Norway. Peter also works with the UK Damaris Trust, leading philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertaking writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. Peter has authored several books, including A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism and C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Welcome back, Peter S. Williams. Thank you very much. It's, it's been a real privilege to be with you for, um, for this extended series of, of uh, episodes uh, looking at Lewis and the New Atheists. Well, again, this is the uh, eighth and final show. Let's start things off with the following. You conclude the book with the chapter entitled Conclusion, First Things First. Without giving away any spoilers, what does this mean? Well, first thing first is a, a, a way that Lewis kind of sums up, I guess, Jesus' teaching about uh, seeking first the kingdom of God. And um, Lewis uh, puts it in terms of thinking um, sort of classically about the kind of great chain of being and, and putting things in the right order of the, the structure of creation and not trying to get secondary things in life at the expense of primary things. And I really use this uh, in this final conclusion uh, as a way of particularly looking at, at what needs to be 
first in our minds as we approach these big issues about God and Jesus and religion and atheism and so on. Uh, and I think that is a, a sense of intellectual honesty uh, and openness and willing willingness to really look at the evidence, look at the arguments and grapple honestly uh, with them. And I think that um, I show in the book uh, that that's something that Lewis had, uh, an intellectual integrity that led him to to wrestle with these issues. Uh, and unfortunately, it's something that you can show at least certain new atheists not displaying at certain moments. You get extra points for style by being able to make the last chapter of the book first things first. I think that's a very <laughs> good <laughs> there, Peter. Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Now, um, Lewis didn't believe that people should turn to Christianity to make them happy. Oh, no. So, um, now, what alternative did he suggest, and what was his actual point? I believe that relates more to uh, truth, maybe putting that first or something like that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, okay, well, let me read you a a quote from Lewis here on this. He says, um, "I, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) He says, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Um, (laughs) But um, what he does say is that in his work in apologetics, he says uh, that um, he always finds it difficult to try and get before the audience's mind um, that he's preaching Christianity because you think it's true, not because you like it or you think it's good for society or something of that sort. Uh, he says he tries to keep the question of truth uh, front and foremost. And as the, the famous um, uh, aphorism uh, uh, text of the, uh, the Socratic club uh, had it, the importance of, of following the argument wherever it leads. Now, one of the things you point out in this section is that there are mistakes that uh, Aldous Huxley points out that the uh, new atheists keep repeating. Uh, What is this? Well, yeah, this is a fascinating quote from Aldous Huxley's um, book Ends and Means from 1937. Aldous Huxley was a contemporary of of Lewis, and he um, says that um, he had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed it had none and was able without difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. He says, most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We didn't know because we don't want to know. Uh, It's our will that decides how and upon what subjects we'll use our intelligence and so on. Uh, He said um, that those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so uh, because it suits their book that the world should be meaningless. Um, it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. And I, I think that's something that, uh, unfortunately, I think applies to uh, the new atheists. It, sh- it suits their books that the world should be meaningless and they don't um, f- have to go far to find uh, some rationalizations of, of why that should be the case. But they're not really, again, grappling with the issue uh, in a in a sound intellectually honest uh, searching kind of a way that their ignorance on for example uh, various of the arguments for the existence of god um, that they simply don't interact with uh, but which are arguments that weighed heavily with lewis um, their ignorance is a as a vincible ignorance you know they the new atheists will know enough about lewis uh, to uh, to criticize him and to pour scorn on him as a defender of Christianity, but they won't know enough about Lewis, uh, for example, for Dawkins to even uh, recognise um, the argument from reason 
when uh, Paul Copan put it to him uh, in a discussion uh, that we mentioned in a previous podcast and so on. Now, this takes us to, I mean, you might have given the answer already, but I'm especially interested to hear it in relation to a couple of quotes that are related to each other in your book here. The first one is this. It says, C.S. Lewis knew from personal experience that it takes guts to reevaluate one's view and that it takes time to move from one position to another. And then the other one is the statement that you've alluded to already, Peter, which is that the Socratic clubs call to follow the argument wherever it leads. Is this something that the new atheists appear willing to do then? Well, as I, as I say, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, this is an area where we don't want to make blanket uh, statements. Uh, and of course, we're working uh, from uh, the limited uh, evidence of the, the writings of, of these guys and, and the public pronouncements and so on. But it certainly does seem to me that there are cases where they are, um, to use that Aldous Huxley phrase, um, vincibly uh, ignorant uh, upon matters, uh, even upon matters that they have been publicly uh, corrected on, and that actually they themselves give evidence of, of knowing that things are more complicated than they pretend, as it were. So one example I look at is the, the late Christopher Hitchens, who in a couple of debates uh, with Christian uh, philosophers uh, used the moral argument with him. And he responded by uh, bringing up red herrings about moral motivation and so on and sort of saying, you know, how dare you sort of argue that, um, you know, atheists can't be good people or stuff like this. Um and uh, the philosopher that he was um, having this uh, debate with, I think it was Jay Richards, uh, very patiently and carefully uh, explained that that was not what the moral argument was claiming and went through the argument with him again and so on. Um, in, a, in a later debate uh, with Frank Trek, Frank Trek used the same moral argument. Um, Christopher Hitchens made the same red herring objection. Frank Trek again patiently explain no that's not what the moral argument is claiming and so on and then fascinatingly and, and revealingly uh, during the question and answer time um, when um, the matter of the moral argument wasn't particularly forefront uh, in Hitchens's mind in response to a, a question from an audience member Hitchens himself said that he totally agreed uh, with David Hume that you can't get an ought from an is uh, and that you can't uh, give this, this sort of uh, grounding to uh, objective moral laws just in terms of um, naturalistic descriptions of the way things happen to be, um, which is, of course, a central uh, point of the moral argument for God. Um, so actually, Hitchens does understand that there is an issue um, dealt with in classical, you know, classically in philosophy, when get back at least to Hume about um, how you get that and justify moral oughts and whether that fits with naturalism and so on. Uh, there is this whole uh, realm of, of, of meta-ethics um, that is not to do with this red herring about uh, moral um, psychology or uh, how we know about right or wrong or how we get the wherewithal to follow it. But, um, you know, how can there be such a thing within a naturalistic worldview? And... Um, so he, you know, he will respond to that kind of argument, um, even though he's been corrected on it with the same red herring again, and yet um, respond to an audience member with a, a response that shows that actually he does have some knowledge, at least, of the underlying philosophical issues that are really 
the ones at, at question. So it's not that he is completely ignorant about the philosophy underlying that, um, but um, that he sidesteps it in dealing with the issues in the debate. I'd recommend people watch Hitchens' debate with William Lane Craig, especially. I, that was one where I really thought Hitchens was struggling. And Bill Craig actually does explicitly point out in that debate that this is exactly what Hitchens was doing. It, yeah, it didn't go very well for him at all there. Well, now, one of the things that our listeners may be aware of, and that is Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, says that he hopes readers, quote, will be atheists by the time they've put the book down. Well, now, Peter S. Williams, what are you hoping your readers will get out of C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist by the time they put it down? Well, I actually say at one point uh, in the conclusion here that I think it's uh, unlikely that anyone's going to change their worldview simply on the basis of having read one book. Um, that is to think that people change their minds uh, quicker than I think most people do on such fundamental issues. Um, but I do hope at least that people will come to see um, that the new uh, atheists uh, do not cut the philosophical mustard on this issue, um, that they so contrive, as I say, to, to ignore or misunderstand, evade and beg the question against the arguments for God and the evidence for Jesus, that they are not reliable guides to this important issue, uh, but that Lewis um, displays an intellectual integrity in grappling with uh, the arguments that gradually moved him away from atheism towards theism to Christianity, um, to sh enough to show the reader that there is something at least here worth grappling with and considering and taking seriously and thinking more about uh, and not taking guidance in their thinking about it from the new atheist movement uh, at the very least, but going to more reputable sources to actually get the ideas um, from the horse's mouth about Christianity and to pay serious attention to the issue because there's it's a, it's a, an important and serious issue and there is um, meat to get your teeth into there, uh, evidentially, philosophically uh, speaking, um, meat that the new atheists um, don't know about or uh, simply dismiss using fallacious uh, arguments, unfortunately. Now, doing... Uh, what we've done quite a few times throughout the course of this series, if we imagine that Lewis is around today and he is able to interact and take a good look at the new atheists right here in the 21st century, on the basis of what you know of Lewis, uh, of having read his work and getting an understanding of what he valued, what do you think he would say is the biggest problem posed by the new atheists today. What do you think Lewis would yeah. especially would have to say about that? I think he would want to pinpoint uh, the new atheist idea that, that all faith is by definition a matter of uh, blind, irrational commitment to something uh, without regard for reason or evidence. This is what the new atheists portray uh, all faith as being and that is uh, lewis would want to point out certainly not a biblical or a historic christian understanding of what faith is um, that faith uh, does have regard for reason and rationality and evidence and that we need to um, actually get into the issues and the new atheist i think use this uh, as a way of of dismissing 
religion and Christianity um, before uh, and thus not having to, having to engage with um, the apologetic philosophical evidential arguments of, of the Christian because by definition the Christian is someone who doesn't have such arguments <laughs> because uh, that's not what it means to have faith uh, by definition uh, and so religious people can be engaged with at a, le- at a level of uh, of ridicule as Richard Dawkins has uh, called upon people uh, to do uh, so I think Lewis would want to put his finger on this and say no faith is something that actually is interested in truth uh, and rationality and being reasonable about things uh, and that we need to engage uh, in a intellectually responsible manner with these issues rather than uh, dismissing uh, one side or another uh, at a basis, uh, at a level of, of personality, uh, or ad hominem arguments, uh, ridicule and so on, that we actually need to get our teeth stuck into the issue of, is this true? I especially like Lewis's um, way of explaining how faith is actually about sticking with your reasons with your rationality uh when your moods are taking you in in the other direction it, I, I just get a bit of um I, I enjoy the idea of imagining him explaining that to the new atheist saying actually it's yes. about sticking with your reason and keeping a good eye on your moods watch your moods you know mm. yeah that's an excellent point yeah i think yeah many christians here uh also need to be reminded of that as well as well as the these uh, new atheists to consider that point well, now we want to kind of shift somewhat here uh, in in this final show, and that is deal with uh, a, few, a few questions to kind of give a grand overview of the material that that we've been addressing in our first show. We tried to introduce, and we we took um, at least one question from each chapter. We're not going to do that now; time won't allow. We'll just do a couple, three questions here to to recap. With that, we'll kind of contrast with the the last one of sorts, and that is just revisiting the issue of. Since Lewis passed away in 1963, he's been dead for over 50 years now, how could Lewis have already addressed these core beliefs of today's atheists, considering the fact he's been dead for so long? Well, I think I show that part of the intellectual atmosphere of Oxford in the early 20th century were various ideas that um, gave birth to the positivist, logical positivist movement of AJR and so on. And something of that sort of hardline empiricist approach to knowledge um, uh, has carried over into the new atheist movement. It's, it's sort of almost as if today's new atheists are sort of suffering uh, a positivist hangover from the philosophy of the 1920s and 30s. Um, that is a philosophy that Lewis himself, even as an atheist, rejected. Um, that Lewis was always someone uh, who valued the, the classical philosophical tradition uh, of the ancient Greeks, uh, who loved the writings of David Hume and, and so on, uh, but wouldn't uh, go down the line with Hume's um, approach to uh, knowledge. Um, that was, uh, Also, you can see some of the roots of sort of AJS positivism in, in, in Hume's philosophy, unfortunately. And Lewis didn't go down that line. And uh, Lewis took metaphysics, uh, philosophy, broadly speaking, uh, seriously and uh, was moved by philosophical considerations uh, towards a belief uh, in uh, in God uh, first before he then moved on to um, a specifically Christian uh, belief in God. So um, Lewis's um, refusal to get sort of sucked into 
um, a, a narrow, hardline empiricist view of knowledge um, preserved him as, as a philosophically relevant voice in the conversation today, uh, where um, you know the, the verificationism and, and that sort of hardline view of the early 20th century is, is a dead duck, uh, philosophically speaking. Now, we encourage people to listen to the fourth show, which is about the third chapter, for more details about this. But could you recap for us what the argument from desire is and how well or not the new atheists respond to it? Sure. Well, very, very briefly, uh, the argument from desire is an argument from a a particular kind of experience, um, beloved particularly of the romantic uh, writers, um, an experience of a, of a sort of longing for a transcendent something uh, beyond what the world uh, around us seems to be able to, to give us in terms of satisfactions for this desire. But it's a desire um, elicited by our experience of various things in the world, say our art or beauty and what have you, um, but that points towards or, or seems to uh, point towards something beyond the world, beyond what the the mundane world around us has to offer us as in terms of satisfactions for this desire. So Lewis interprets um, this uh, desire for the transcendent uh, something beyond the, what the world offers as a desire for God and uh, argues this in various different ways in different places. Uh, for example, the new atheist Peter Atkins um, quite rightly observes uh, that longing is not itself an adequate proof of the existence of what's longed for. Um, you can long for something that doesn't exist. Well, of course you can. This completely ignores the fact that Lewis, for example, makes a crucial distinction uh, between uh, desires that we have that are innate uh, or natural to our natures and uh, desires that we have that are uh, conditioned simply by uh, advertisers or coming across things that are made up. So there's all the difference in the world between desiring um, you know, um, a Rolls-Royce and uh, desiring uh, food or knowledge or friendship, uh, which are innate desires. And Lewis argues that this um, desire for tran- the transcendent uh, is, a, is a natural, innate uh, desire. Uh, and if that is correct, then that completely sidesteps uh, Atkins' uh, rather trite uh, objection. Right. Well, n- now we have come to the very last question of the series, I I know what the question is going to be, and it's an especially uh, cruel question to uh, ask a philosopher, especially one as thoroughly read as yourself, Peter. But um, nonetheless, I'm looking forward to um, uh, what we're going to get. So, uh, William, do uh, take us away and let's have the last question here. Ah, and uh, and I must preface it by saying that you're the one that wrote it, so you yeah, uh, have ever, <laughs> you have every right to uh, say it's a very cruel question. But yes, uh, people will understand uh, uh, that uh, uh, when we say it here, and that is considering you know we you know previously l- looked at you know every chapter you know in the book, and we even spent the the first program as we mentioned uh, just pitching one question. But let's condense things even further, and that is if you could summarize in a single sentence. Why Lewis's works are still relevant in the face of modern-day new atheists? What would that be? Well, okay, here's a stab. Uh, Lewis shows us how uh, an atheist with intellectual t- integrity, who takes philosophy seriously, uh, can be led 
to move away from his atheism and to a belief in God by following the argument wherever it leads. Nice. <laughs> well done. Ah, uh, of course, we did give it to him ahead of time, so that may have helped. <laughs> yeah, well, don't tell them that. Okay, well, actually, all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hmm. All right, well, let's see. We'll try to continue here. And Well, sadly, I hate to say that we must end our final show now with that. This has been the eighth program examining C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist, a book by Peter S. Williams. In our other shows, we talked about some, or we gave him the opportunity to share some of the other books that he has uh, authored as well. That'll be listed in the show notes. You've been listening to All About Jack and C.S. Lewis podcast. I'm William O'Flaherty, the producer and director of this show. And I mentioned previously that you can uh, listen to the other podcasts by either going to EssentialCSLewis.com or the location where the audio files are hosted at AllAboutJack.Podbean.com. Either place is, again, also where you can get links in the show notes to the places mentioned. Before leaving for this final time, uh, let me thank Peter B., for the opportunity to work with you. Thanks, Peter B. Well, thank you. It was really great for, I'm really grateful that you asked me to come on board and do this because, yeah, I've had a really good time just going through this series, co-hosting it and coming up with and asking questions and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, very much enjoyed it. Very grateful indeed. Well, now, one of the things, uh, Peter B., you mentioned at the very beginning, I don't think we, you've shared since then, and that is you noted how apologetics in general and even uh, some of Peter S. Williams' work has helped you uh, either come to the faith and or strengthen your faith. Can you share briefly about that again? Yeah, well, um, boy, I've got to make sure I give you the short version here. <laughs> but, um, well, essentially, yeah, um, during university years, I'd become very persuaded of the atheist position i'd uh, fallen into reading books like the god delusion richard dawkins books uh, christopher hitchens's books and so i i got very much persuaded by their view but also i was taken by the demand that they made about following the evidence and basing your beliefs on the evidence and so i chased that up and through uh, watching and reading the new atheists eventually discovered um very strong christian apologetics and that was where the evidence led um, rather disturbingly for me at the time. Um, the evidence began to point away from atheism and into Christianity, actually. Um, so really, that was the big role that apologetics played. Um, uh, you know, whether or not um, see some of my doubts and questions and objections to Christianity were very sincere. Uh, there were things about Christianity that just didn't make sense or didn't seem to have any evidence. And so some of my questions were sincere, but then on the other hand, I've got to be honest and say there were other ways in which I was being quite insincere and didn't want it to be true either. I quite like the idea of not having a cosmic authority and, or as you know, Chris Hitchens would say a celestial North Korea or whatever you want to call it, you know, pejoratively in that sense. So really, but, but it dealt with both. It kind of knocked down those intellectual objections and got me to the point where I actually had to yeah just take more of a hard look at myself really and realize look there's no good reason to run away from this anymore just you know do it and um and among that yes peter s williams's work um was part of that journey um it was very very influential um 
and it was mainly through hearing uh, the audio that he had online. Um, I, I must have discovered his podcast feed at some point or through various, uh, there are various avenues of discovering this apologetics material. And uh, I can't really quite remember what the avenue was specifically, but I did end up uh, listening to um, his responses to uh, the new atheism, uh, the critiques that he would make of arguments made in the God delusion. Um, even his talk on the ontological argument, I found made a number of uh, uh, light bulbs go on in my head. But uh, but yeah, no, I think um, but I do have to say, Peter, that your your work is very, very strong and very, very clearly articulated. Um, it's a big help that you're a science fiction and Doctor Who fan as well, because that got me into you know other other topics that you covered and links that you made there. But I've got to say, I think um, you know you're probably the closest that we've got to a, a British William Lane Craig with the precision of your your work and your arguments. So um, yeah, um, thank you very much for the help that you offered, and it's great to be here uh, while co-hosting with William and hosting you. Oh wow. Thank you so much for, for that, Pete. That you're making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good thing this is on radio. <laughs> well, having mentioned the website, Peter S. Williams, let's go ahead and have you share what that website is and just briefly what people can find there. Uh, sure. So if you go to uh, www.peterswilliams, uh, my middle name is Stephen, so that's the S for Stephen, Peter S. Williams, all is one word, dot com. Uh, and this is a website that indeed Peter B is putting together and managing for me. We're gradually getting more material up there. Uh, but you'll find, uh, particularly under media, you'll find my podcast channel, uh, videos, uh, links to my YouTube uh, channel and so on, uh, links to my blog, um, information about my various uh, books there and um, where you can purchase them from online and so on. A link to my um, Twitter feed uh, and so on and so forth. So it's it's all uh, freely available there at peterswilliams.com. Excellent. And now the uh, one thing I do want to finish out with here, and that is I I asked you ahead of time to select kind of I think a top five essays by Lewis that you recommend the uh, the most. Uh, so if you could share that. Mm before we go well i'll particularly uh, recommend in the in the context of um the book that we've been looking at i think that gives us uh, a framework uh, to, to narrow it, the, the question down a little bit and uh, i'll recommend a bunch of essays that can all be found in one volume uh, to make it easier for people as well there's a uh, a volume called the c.s lewis essay collection faith christianity and the church published by harper collins and in uh, that book, I particularly recommend, in this context, looking at the, the essays, uh, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? Uh, the Weight of Glory, which is one of Lewis's sermons. Um, Fern, Seed and Elephants, we've mentioned. Uh, the Language of Religion. And uh, finally, Man or Rabbit, uh, which particularly links uh, to what I write about in the conclusion. Excellent, uh, and I do recommend people do check that out. That's a good essay collection. That that uh, uh, collects uh, really uh, basically half of all the essays that, that are published, uh, essentially. It uh, can be somewhat hard to find here in the U.S., actually, uh, but that is a large uh, collection. I think many of those essays might be in God in the Dock. 
I will fish out uh, links to the other possible books that are in print if they are not. And I should um, but, just crowbar in here, if I may, William, uh, the Man or Rabbit um, essay that I, I mentioned, I think, a few uh, podcasts ago. And um, there's a very good YouTube video adaptation of that essay which is actually voiced by one of my friends who did the voice of C.S. Lewis in one of the promotional trailers for Peter's book. So uh, that's well worth a look searching Man or Rabbit into YouTube as well. Yes, and we'll include, as we have already, the link in the show notes for that. So, yes, people can check that out. Well, finally then, I hope everyone has enjoyed not only this final show, but also the entire series. You can uh, check out or listen to those previous shows on this C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist by going to allaboutjack.podbean.com or essentialcslewis.com. There you'll also find other interviews I've done. Last year I recorded some single interviews with uh, Dr. Devin Brown, Dr. Alistair McGrath, and Colin Durier on the biographies that they did. So you can check that out as well as other single interviews and different uh, podcasts that I have. So thanks again, everyone, for listening to All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. 